0: Professor Louise Burke is a prestigious recipient of the Order of Australia medal and is a pioneer and leader in the nutrition industry for athletes worldwide. We're proud to say she's an Australian sports dietitian, academic, and author, and also a very old friend of UDAD. She was the head of sports nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport throughout uh, her time there from 1990 to 2018, and in 2018 was appointed chief of AIS Nutrition Strategy, although she has mentioned that the uh, actual nutrition side of uh, the AIS has folded, hence her new appointment um, as chief of AIS. She's held the position of team dietitian for the Australian Olympic teams uh, for the Games in 1996 in Atlanta, 2000 in Sydney, 2004 in Athens, 2008 in Beijing and 2012 London Games. She's authored and co-authored more than 250 peer-reviewed articles and her research is, as we said before, recognized worldwide. She's a former Ironman athlete herself competing in Hawaii on five occasions as well as an accomplished marathon runner and she's still running marathons every year to this day. Uh, Dad, it was very good to welcome an old friend of yours back on the podcast and someone that has created such a career for themselves that you were kind of there at the start of, in the beginning, back in your Ironman career.
1: Yeah, it's, it was really lovely to reconnect with uh, Professor Louise, and she's just Louise to me, but um, oh, I've just watched her career um, from afar and and just admired um, her passion for what she does, and as you know, George, if you love doing something, you'll be very good at it, and she absolutely loves uh, her work, and she's she's looked at it from both sides. She's looked at it from an athlete's point of view because she was, you know, she was a really... She's, She's done five Ironman. She's done, I don't know how many marathons, you know, 15 or 20. She's still running marathons now. And she said she's going to be running until she's 80 apparently. But um, but th- these are the things that she's done as an athlete. And she's also been heavily involved with elite athletes and almost uh, be- befriended coaches. Um, so she's got the three things that are so important is understanding how an athlete um, functions, um, uh, how a coach has a relationship with the athlete and the nutrition that's involved between the athlete the coach and the nutritionalist and so she's she's got all three sides covered and that's that's incredible and look her experience and we go a long way back uh we traveled together to to hawaii uh, we she was on the team to japan that we were on team australia and we went to reunion the island of reunion where the northern hemisphere competed against the southern hemisphere in triathlon and louise was a pioneer in all those events and uh she was such a good friend to me and she was such a a really helpful person to guide me with my own nutrition um, in my own competing and uh yeah i'm so grateful that she's uh she's really um done well with her own career and uh, she's given us some time uh, i don't know her time is very valuable she, she gets requested to do a lot of uh podcast and so we're really grateful that she's uh given us her time so thank you
0: as always nutrition is one of the most popular topics and this was no different and uh we were really uh, pleased to be able to ask her such specific questions on recommendations around nutrition strategy both from training and a racing perspective so you'll hear all that and more in this episode here is louise burke enjoy Louise Burke, thank you so much for joining us on the Travelo Podcast. We're really, really stoked to have you here. We'll launch into the first question. We want to know, what does nutrition mean to you?
2: Oh, it means so many things. But the first thing it means is just fun and pleasure and social activity. And it's, you know, one of the reasons I get up in the morning and it's one of the reasons that I feel happy. So when I'm working with an athlete and we're trying to think about what the nutrient needs of their sport are, I'm always really keen to make sure that we can manage it and still maintain all those great things that make food so wonderful. So you don't have to give up everything. You don't have to be, you know, sort of always fussing and stressing about it. There's ways in which you can meet nutrition goals in lots of different ways so that you can make it work in your real life.
1: That's a great answer. (coughs) I'll jump in, Jordan. Sometimes, Louise, uh, Jordan, I just jumping on each other because we're so excited about asking the next question. So <laughs> <laughs> um, so right from the outset, I want to frame this uh, discussion that we're going to have tonight. I'm so excited to, to, to talk about this because it's such a key component. You can be as fit as you like, and if you don't fuel yourself, I say this to our athletes all the time, you're probably not going to get the result you want. It uh, doesn't matter how fit you are. If you don't fuel, especially for endurance races, it's catastrophic. Um, and, and it's so disheartening to do all that preparation and just be uh, you know ripped apart by incorrect fueling and the one thing I want to get across is I and Jordan are absolute keen uh, advisors of a balanced uh, food plan one that can be sustainable for your whole life and and we want to know just what you just said then what does it mean to you we don't want to be a person who's boring and goes to a party and can't drink and can't have any dessert and can't enjoy themselves because they're oh doing the Iron Man and they can't have mm. that particular food. Can you just talk about that a little bit and the balance that you try to achieve?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that, sh- you know, you wouldn't want to be doing is lecturing everybody else, like making everybody else feel sad about the whole thing. So There's lots of ways in which we can use nutrition to eat more of the things that are going to help us and less of the things that aren't so great. But you can still manage to do it in a way that makes you able to eat with other people, that you can socialise and that some part of your diet's there for just things that you enjoy. And that doesn't mean they have to be sort of like the junk foods. You can really enjoy of the healthier foods as well. But part of what you should be doing with your nutrition to make it sustainable is to make it enjoyable and make it fit in so that it's practical to conduct in your life. You can't make it so complicated or so time-consuming that it's hard or you can't restrict so many things so that when you go out publicly there's nothing that's available that's on your diet and you know, you can't, you know, spend so much time putting it together that it's just not feasible to be used. So um, that's the first thing. And the, the next thing I think that's a really good thing to know in ways in which we've evolved sports nutrition is so that I think when I started as a sports dietitian, I had this idea that there was going to be this perfect athlete's diet and you've got it, and then you just repeat every day, you know. So you train eat, and you just do the same thing. Once you've once you've got the the, um, magic secret ingredient of your menu, it's just repeat. Whereas now we know, just like the training, you do something different every day and every training session you do, even at a sort of recreational level, it's got different goals. And so you need to keep manipulating and um, adapting what you're eating from day to day so that it's really thinking about what am I trying to achieve today (laughs) how does my training differ from yesterday so what do I need to eat differently so the amount that you eat the amount of carbohydrate that you eat how you space your carbs from where the protein is it all changes not just between athletes but within the same athlete from day to day depending on you know what their goals are and so if you can understand that principle that's really sustainable as well because then you know you're never going to set yourself up to Overdo it or underdo it, it's going to always sort of track what you're doing with your food plan. And you said before that um, athletes can come unstuck when they don't fuel themselves properly, but they can also try and look for too much from nutrition. Like I know lots of athletes that undertrain and then they think that if they just fuel more <laughs> during the race or buy some special supplement or sports food, that that's somehow going to translate all the mistakes or the lack of training that they did and overcome it. So you've got to think about it, you know, you've know, you got to really hit those targets properly and neither overemphasise nutrition where it's not a limiting factor or underestimate how much nutrition is going to play a role in your performance
0: so in that you mentioned uh, there are some specific things you can do with food um to make it easier uh to make it uh, easy to follow a more balanced diet uh, what are some specific tactics uh, that you can think of off the top of your head that actually do help people in terms of food choices or carbohydrate amounts or fat or protein amounts throughout their day
2: yeah so the first thing is a principle is that i like to um include as many different foods that are available as possible so Um, Look, I understand that some people would like to be vegetarian or vegan for sustainability reasons, and I applaud that, and some people have food intolerances um, that mean that they may not be able to eat other foods. But in general, the more different foods that you include in your menu plan, the better, and that's for both the nutrient composition but also just for the availability of things. You know, if you're a fussy eater, um, you, you get situations where you can't find what you need to eat from the available food supply. So the more flexible you are and the more that you can embrace a whole lot of foods better, and that means that in terms of sustainability, you know, you could do things like have some meals a week that don't contain meat, and you could certainly eat produce that's in season um, rather than, you know, looking for things that have travelled the long way, etc. So there's lots of ways in which we can meet kind of other principles of of food um, but still keep the nutritional aspects of it as as maximised as possible so um, that's one thing but then the next thing you think about is what's your training sessions of the day and more um, training load and intensity that you have then the more carbohydrate becomes your friend in terms of the fuel supply and so we try then to think about putting meals together that either before, during, or after that session, where we want to be well fueled, contains some carbohydrate, and that might mean that you, you know, thinking of carbohydrate-rich foods, whether it's bread, pasta, breakfast cereal, rice, potatoes. Um, they're just you know some of the common ones that people think of with carb supply, and so sometimes you might be thinking about having the night before that that carb-rich meal, so you've got fuel being stored overnight in your muscle called glycogen so that it's there for the next day. Sometimes you might be taking it out with you on the session if you're doing a long bike ride so you can top up with more carbs. And sometimes you might be thinking, well, I've got two big sessions in a row, so I'm going to eat more carbs after after the first session so I can refuel for the second session. So modulating the amount of carbohydrate that's in the meals is – one sort of key principle of of that um, dietary manipulation. And then another one might be about protein. So there's been a huge fight in nutrition for years about, you know, do athletes need more protein? In most of the cases, they don't need more, but they could do a better job spreading it out because most of us, we tend to not eat much protein for breakfast and sometimes Mm -hmm. for lunch and our snacks aren't usually protein-rich, but then we eat half a cow at night for dinner. And so we get enough protein, but it's just not spread well enough so that our body's got access to the amino acids that it needs to keep synthesising protein over the day in, in our muscles and other parts of our body. So what we want to do is to try and think about having some protein after key training sessions, particularly if you're doing weights or you're doing... Know, strenuous exercise so you know a high intensity or a long session where you're causing some muscle damage after that you'd like to have some protein in the recovery snack and generally just spreading it over the day so a bit more at breakfast um, and you know making sure that your lunch is, is, is probably a bit more protein for most people and you can then afford to cut down a little bit at the evening meal so that there's more room for the carbs that you might need for the next day. So that's just an example of how you might think of two of the important nutrients and just spreading them a little bit differently according to what you need.
0: That's absolutely brilliant. I guess the um, golden question then follows, and I don't know how you can go about answering this, but um, let's let's talk about any type of training day. How much do I have pre-training? How much do I need during training and how much after? How do you even go about working that out for an individual?
2: Yeah, well, it's a bit about what the training session is and what you're trying to achieve. So um, if you're trying to perform as well as you can in the session and you want to have some intensity, some quality or some duration there, then the carb story is important. So, you know, it might be this morning's training session, it might be that you're going out and doing a long run on Sunday morning. So that means Saturday night's meal should really then start thinking about the fueling process. Um, And then you can choose whether you have breakfast or not in the morning. If you want to be totally well-fueled, then having some brekkie before you go out and do the training session makes sense. And you might even take some more carbs with you on on the um, run or ride or whatever the the session is. Um, But there's another um, sort of approach to carbohydrate, which is to say that if you try and do the session without carbohydrate support so that you're under-fueled, that actually provides an extra stimulus to your muscles to make them adapt to that session better. Now, they don't train as well, so you wouldn't be choosing a high-quality session to do that. We call this the train-low idea. So if you were doing that longer session, I wouldn't go too long because you probably wouldn't finish it and it'd be just so miserable that you'd probably give up sport altogether, but (laughs) if you said to yourself, what I'm going to try and do is train smart with this session. It's just a recovery session. It's just going to be, you know, like an hour ride or a 40-minute run or whatever. But what I'm going to do is I'm not going to have a lot of carbs tonight before. I'm just going to eat some meat and chicken, whatever, and veggies for dinner. And that next morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it faster, get that session done. Then because you've done it without so much carbohydrate being available, um, you might feel a bit less sippy. But the muscle adapts and gets more out of that session than if you'd had the carbs. So what we do with sport these days is try and um, think about sessions and periodise what the type of session is going to be and periodise the nutrition support around it. And it's kind of this new idea that sometimes taking away the nutrition support um, can help the the muscle adapt, even though it's not doing a great job of, of doing the session, But So then you balance it up with having other sessions where you're really well-fueled so that you're getting the quality from those sessions. And it's a bit of mixing and matching, and you guys as coaches um, know how important it is to have all these different kinds of sessions that you do because what you're trying to do is build up your perfect race day athlete with a whole lot of characteristics, and each of those characteristics comes from a different type of training. So you're sort of like the conductor of the orchestra you've got all these different instruments all working together to finally produce the music on the day Mm. and so just as you choose the training Mm. sessions to do that we can help that a little bit more with the way that you put nutrition around it
1: it's a a really good concept and it almost uh, resembles your selection of fueling doesn't it when you're Uh, whatever you're going to eat on any given day breakfast lunch and dinner or the snacks in between you're giving like you said earlier giving yourself as much variety each day as possible not trying to replicate the same food each day because our requirements in our because we're talking to everyday athletes out there at the moment, their requirements are they have some sort of training that's going to happen each day. And it may be a recovery day. It may be a high intensity day. It may be an endurance day, maybe a tempo day. So just like we want variety in our food to get all of the right nutrients we we have variety in, in our training sessions, so they almost have to mimic each other, don't they? Um Absolutely. And, and then we can manipulate it is what you're saying here. If I'm trying to summarize it so that people can really get a, a, a really good idea of what you're getting across here, that we're trying to we're trying to manipulate it so that some days we do the endurance ride without the carbs so that we're teaching our body to, to burn fats a bit better. And some days on our high intensity days, we would also go in under carb so that we may struggle to hit the high intensity that we're aiming to, but it's giving us a different stimulus when our muscles fatigued. So you wouldn't want to do this a lot. Would you, would you say that? Or
2: Yeah, absolutely. We've got to, we've got to build all those different um, characteristics in because at the end of the day, you know, you want the muscle to be able to to move as fast as possible at some point. So you've got to do those sessions that allow it to learn to do that. And you've also got to do the sessions that allow you to be able to tolerate consuming carbs and fluid, mm-hmm. and being able to learn the behaviour of them, as well as learn to tolerate gastrointestinally that you can absorb them and get them to the muscle. And so. That's all practice as well. We sometimes forget that our gut is just another thing that can be trained, and so you, you really need to practice all those sessions, even down to what actual things you're going to have during the race, um, because there's evidence that we tolerate and we learn to, to um, absorb and empty the things that we're used to having most. So even though you might say, I'll just have um, carbs," doesn't matter what sort this training session that's good but then other times you might want to think what's going to actually be in that race you know what is the brand of sports drink, or what are the things i'm going to carry in my pocket so that those are the things that you've trialed and then you know both behaviorally that you can manage it and and from the point of view of your gut that it can tolerate and empty it and so all this stuff's got to be practiced and i mean you I think back to some of the, the sessions we did back in the day, um, Jared. you and I, where, you know, we really did do that. I, I can remember the first Ironman that I did, um, there wasn't any such thing as sort of sports drinks and gels and things, but we found out that um, in Kona they had guava jelly sandwiches at the aid stations. And I can remember getting guava jelly, just, just <laughs> jam made from guavas, like um, to sent over it making up sandwiches and taking yep. them out on the bike and because you wanted to actually practice
1: the real thing. Yep, It's so, such a good point. And, and not only practicing what fuel you're going to do on race day, but practice it against the exact intensity of your race day. And can you talk to that a, a little bit? Because I think people are really underestimating how important that aspect of the practice session is. Oh,
2: absolutely. And it, look, some of it's behaviour. And some of it's um, physiology of your body, and don't underestimate the behaviour. Because another funny story from way back, I remember when I did my first Ironman, and I hadn't, I didn't really ride bikes prior to that, and I remember <laughs> developing a sports drink because you know there really weren't a lot of commercially available ones then. And I felt so smug on my bike, you know, when I got to the, the bike at uh, the swim with my special sports drink on it. But I hadn't learned to ride the bike well enough in a group so that I could take <laughs> one hand off the handlebar and get it at the bidding cage. And so I didn't drink a thing for the whole bike. Because <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me just to learn the behavior of doing it or doing it under the pressure of that intensity and with all those other people around me where I, you know, I never had really good bike handling skills. So you've got to learn those, those behavioural and time and, and concentration tactics. You know, you've got to train yourself to remember to, to, to do the feeding. And then at the same time, you've got to train your body to be able to, to like it, to swallow it, to empty it from your stomach into your intestine, and then absorb it from the intestine and send it down to your muscles. So if you haven't done any of that stuff over and over again, it's not going to happen on race day because you haven't adapted your body to all that stuff.
0: A bit of the advice around gut tolerance um, can come off as generic and uh, even just um, trial and error. Uh, is, is there any, do you, do you, I know you've done so many studies, are any of them on how long it takes your gut to learn to tolerate something? Uh, is there any kind of framework around how, how that uh, process actually
2: works? Yeah, look, I don't think the studies have been done so systematically that says 13.5 days or 12.6 times is the magic number. Um, we've certainly looked at two weeks as a, as an ideal and it, it, it does work in that period of time, but that's for athletes who probably came from some background and over that two weeks um, had a large number of training sessions to trial it in. Um, so... It might take a bit longer for you know, a recreational athlete who's not doing that many sessions. And also for someone who's done no eating at all during exercise, it may take longer. And it may be that you start off with um, smaller volumes or lower concentrations of what you're trying to have, and then gradually build up so that you can tolerate the, the full load. And that's, you know, that's it is a lot of trial and error and not everyone's individual like we do find even when you put people on a um a gut adaptation program you'll find that some people are just much better than others at the end of it but everybody can improve and so that's the that's the idea finding the level that's comfortable for you that you can manage in the race scenario
0: That's really great to know. And uh, before we continue with a lot of the uh, scientific advice, I do want to circle back to uh, what we just spoke about with some of your experiences in the uh, 80s and early 90s. And uh, talk us through, I asked you off air, do you remember uh, some of the studies you did with dad and you jokingly said, how could we forget? Uh, I know the listeners will be dying to know what was some of the stuff you were doing back then? What were you trialing? Like you said, it was all very new. Sports drinks were barely even on the market. What, What was that experience and why was it so memorable?
2: Well, I've probably got the opportunity to apologise to your father because I was—I had lots of ideas, but I wasn't a very good scientist then in terms of implementing them in the lab. But I had this idea. Can I,
1: just say, can I just say before you start that we were at the mercy of Louise because we knew nothing and she knew something and that was better than knowing nothing. So we totally trusted whatever she told us we were blindly following and little did we know that at the time everybody is learning everybody's experimenting we don't actually know until we try it so I just want to put that out there before you start this story anyway
2: and, and you were very generous let me say so <laughs> back in the 1990s the options with sports drinks were few and they were both mostly um based on sugar, so glucose and maybe some fructose, but it was it was these very simple carbohydrates. And one of the problems that people were experiencing was that emptying large concentrations or you know, very um, concentrated drinks often led to gut upsets. And so the problem was then that you felt terrible and you, you know, could have been sick during a race, but also it was stopping what you were drinking from actually getting to the muscle. If you couldn't empty it from your stomach to your intestine and then absorb it, then it was kind of not really being nutrition. It was it was just um, making okay. the road, <laughs> road-coloured. Uh, so there was some evidence that if we could use more complex carbohydrates to use what was a polymer, so glucose all joined together, then... They were emptied from the stomach into the intestine more quickly because even though the same concentration was in the two drinks, the one that was made up of the polymers had less individual bits to it and it would empty more quickly, and then in the intestine it'd break it down and it'd send all those carbs to your muscles. So there were some drinks being um, produced and they they were made from these glucose polymers. So I had the idea of what if you could go even more complex like a starch so that these um, concentrations of carbohydrate would, would seem to have lots of carbs but few individual components of it until it was in the intestine. And so I came up with the idea, let's develop a drink that was based on starch. So we bought some potato starch and had to boil it up to make it um, – first of all, (laughs) um, tolerable. And we made a a sports drink based on this. And I had some colleagues, some very, um, very trusting friends come in and we did two trials, one where we had this new drink and we were looking to see could it allow the athlete to go longer, but could all the extra carbs coming in from the drink rather than from the muscle help you to save the muscle glycogen stores a bit longer so that you could have more of them towards the end of the race when they might be useful. So I actually talked Jared into having a muscle biopsy to see whether the amount of glycogen that was being used during this exercise was um, spared when we had the, 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 um, the starch drink. So I had, I think, 10 of very trusting, very elite athletes come in and we had wind trainers all set up. And we had people in a sort of a circle trying to do the um, time trial drinking. And, of course, I'd, I'd cooked up this stuff on the stove. <laughs> it's amazing. And yeah. I thought, oh, how, it doesn't taste very good. So what can I do? Oh, I'll just put some lemon essence in it. That'll, that'll do. <laughs> Thinking that you know, there's, there's food companies that, that have experts in food technology who spend months and years coming up with the perfect flavour. And that's how they make normal sports drinks and soft drinks. But I just sort of dreamed it up on an afternoon on the stove at home. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, we found there were some, some benefits to, to um, having the starch and we then were able to get a, a sports drink company to make it up in real life. So if um, we
1: want find yeah. some benefits, the, the, the two <laughs> weeks, one uh, just to help the listeners understand what Louise put us through was I think it was 120k on a on an yeah, old Minol- Minolta wind trainer and you made it a competition which was very clever of yourself um, and we were in teams and um, I remember you saying that the fastest two and you didn't know who your partner was that was one of the other mm. things you did um, <laughs> you went into this in very good detail so that we were we were just making sure that we were competitive and really mm. pushing ourselves and and one week we were on the placebo and one week we were on your uh cooking from the kitchen um, <laughs> concoction and uh and the first week i remember crawling off my bike after 120k and and andy having to drag me to the car somehow because i could hardly walk and thinking I hope like hell I was on the placebo this week because <laughs> if this is what's going to happen next week and I'm, I was on the carbs, I'm in trouble and I don't even want to do it next week anyway. Um, the result the next week was, was incredible. I, the difference between week one and week two was, was unbelievable. Surely
0: and you knew from the first sip that, you, that it wasn't. <laughs> no, because she'd flown oh, it. Oh, similarly. Ah. Yeah, yeah
2: that, cool. that was similarly horrible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's done a great job. Yeah, and doing, wow, yeah. And, but
2: uh, it's it's Look, it's so fun to listen to this reverence because um, I look now at, and think of all the things that you do as a scientist, the hardest thing you'll ever do is measure performance accurately because you really have to trust your participants to put a 110% on the line. And so often in studies, you know, you know that people come in and they sort of just dial in the performance. They do enough to mm. make it work on um, on the day of, the, of mm. the trial so that everyone's kind of happy. But you know that if, you know, if a tiger came in the back of the room um, in the middle of that, you could They're go changed. faster. That's
1: right. Yeah,
2: yep. and, yeah, and so um, the fact that I, even back then I was thinking of all these kind of tricks to make people really competitive and to perform
0: you truly it. as hard yeah. as you
2: can get, you know, um, that's that's yeah you know, the the fun thing I like doing now. And and yeah, then talking, sort of, is, talking is
1: talking into having a bi- muscle biopsy in the middle of the test, like. <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for those who
1: don't know what a muscle biopsy is, explain, Louise.
2: Yes. Yeah, so um, we have a well-trained doctor um, put some local anaesthetic in your leg. So we go to the, gas- the, um, the vastus lateralis, the thigh, and they put a little bit of, um, of local anaesthetic and then they put a, a, a um, scalpel, put a hole in it, and then a needle about the size of a ballpoint pen goes into your leg and there's some suction on the end of that that sucks up a little bit of muscle inside that four-point that, um, pen, and then a, a blade chops it off. So you get um, a, a tiny bit of muscle. It's um, large enough so that you can measure a lot of things on it, including glycogen, but small enough so that um, you're, not, you're not going to miss it. You know, you'll still be able to It'll. have a normal life <laughs> afterwards. And that's one of the ways that um, scientists have learned so much about fueling and all the adaptation that happens in the muscle when we exercise and eat in different ways. So it was very, very generous. It's very, very unusual to get high-level athletes being so generous to give up that kind of blood, sweat and tears. And it's because of that generosity that we know so many things. So thank you, Gerard. You... um, for a Pioneer yourself,
0: and was that it? Was your hypothesis correct with the starch? Yes, was, yeah.
2: yes, yeah. So we now know that it's it's probably doesn't have to be starch that those polymers do a good job as well. And now we've even moved on further with the um, commercial sports drinks. There's now these hydrogel ones where the it's not so much the carbohydrate that changes, but they're now manufacturing them so that they're um, coated in a gel which allows them to sort of slip through the stomach and then um, when they get into the intestine and the pH, the acidity of the intestine is different to the stomach, the gel breaks down and then the carbohydrate can be absorbed. So it's amazing when you think about it's just carbs. Like it's something, It's not rocket science, if you like, but the amount of technology that's going into trying to make those carbs get through the body to the um, point of, of fueling the muscle more quickly with with better gut tolerance. There's um, a lot of work that's still going on in there, and still still new things to find
0: it's really it's absolutely brilliant and I'm sure I found the study today I was googling um, Louise Burke's uh, study from 1990-91 trying to find and th- I'm sure I found it because I found mm-hmm. the one with the vastus lateralis biopsy mm-hmm. in there so although the, the participants are obviously anonymous so you can't know for sure but <laughs> I'm sure well, I, is, find it.
2: I tell you what's really fascinating these days in that um you know in the old or still now when you set up your study you have to go through an ethics committee and you um get permission to do it, and part of it is about keeping the uh, the subjects, the participants, anonymous. These days when I'm doing studies, particularly with elite athletes, they're all on social media and they're blogging and, and <laughs> tweeting and whatever about what, what's going on. And so this anonymity is just got out <laughs> the window. Everybody knows what's going on. And sometimes your study becomes famous because of the, um, mm-hmm. the stories that people are writing about it.
0: So, uh, taking back to the training, and I really want to hone in on this point um, of of the idea of figuring out how much, because uh, you can search for you know calorie calculators online, and and you don't find much about you know what what should my race day calculations be. But uh, we'll stick on the training for now. And when you do decide to get enough fuel in the night before or the morning of to really make sure it's a high quality session, how do you figure out how much um, calories per, uh, how many grams of calories or carbs per kilogram you should be having?
2: Well that's a great question and there's sort of different levels of answers to it because um, when you're working as an expert like I do when I'm thinking about that I'm not just thinking of the carbs that you need for that session I'm probably thinking bigger as well and so I'd be thinking about integrating other parts of your nutrition goals into the solution so if I was just Thinking about it, the day before a marathon or a day before an Ironman, where the goal is just to be fueled, I might kind of overdo a little bit, or I might go err on the side of, of um, more than enough, so that we do get that fueling right. And you know, somewhere, if I'm doing carbohydrate loading over a day before. A race, I might be trying to eat 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram body mass. So, 70 kilo athlete would eat 700 grams of, of, of um, carbohydrate. If I was doing it in a training day, it was something I'm doing over and over and over again, you probably couldn't eat that much all the time because mm. as a recreational athlete, you just wouldn't be burning all those calories. And so, you might have to find a balance between how much does my fueling need, but how much calories do I need for the total day and how much that needs to be protein and how much it needs to have other things in it. So I'd be sort of saying, well, if I put everything together, it might be enough to have six grams of carbohydrate over the whole day and maybe two or three of those grams per kilogram are having, being eaten in the evening meal. So um, it's sometimes difficult. But remember, you know, when you have these complicated um, questions and mm. things that you're trying to put to, a whole lot of stuff together, there are experts like me that you can go and consult and have, you know, have those conversations to get it done for you. You, you know, you don't expect to do your own plumbing or do your own mm. Um, mm. legal point. stuff. You know, you, when you get to the point where it's getting complicated, you get the expert that knows how to put it all together in. So it's good to know some things yourself, but sometimes when it gets to the, um, to the bottom line of, well, how am I going to make this all work? It's easy just to go and get the expertise so that you can... Um, and, and that's a conversation. It's not like I've got a diet sheet. That has <laughs> yeah. right. You have to do this and that's the only thing you have to do. I'd be thinking, I'd be sitting and listening to you and I'd be saying, well, what else do we need to achieve in the day and what are the foods that you like to eat and what does the family situation look like, what sort of things do you... or how do you have your meals spread over the day? And so we'd come up with what you need for that kind of a... training session but we build in all
1: those other things with it that's great um that is actually really good advice i want to just get away from the training a little bit and hone in a little bit on the the actual race and the, the preparation you've done with the training and with your practicing your fuel plan i want to i want you to talk to if the intensity that you've trained at for some reason on race day, and, and look, we've got, we've got people who are just new to Ironman, we've got people who may have done 20, we, we've got people who are elite, we've got mid-packers, um, we've got age group leaders. So we've got such a variety of athlete um, who is listening to this podcast. And, and I know that you can fit yourself into one of those five or six categories. The intensity that you compete at will, will make the requirements of your nutrition differ, won't it? Um,
2: it does,
1: yeah. So can you speak to that a little bit for race day, um, just some general advice to to the guys that are listening about, you know, if, if for example, if you think you're going to be riding a six-hour 30 for the 180K compared to someone who's riding a four-hour 20, the intensity of those two athletes is going to be, one's riding at 80%, the other one's riding at 62% of their yep. FTP.
2: Yeah.
1: How, the, how yep. is that affecting... The, the rate of fuel burn and the requirements that they need?
2: Yes, so obviously the, the higher the intensity, the higher the rate of carbohydrate utilisation. So you need to be taking in more per unit of time to, to try and, and manage that. Um, the other thing you've got to think about too is the fluid that you're probably going to be sweating more so that you're going to think about your fluid and um Fuel requirements at the same time, and so it might be that you've got different choices of um, things that you might consume to get the fluid and, and the fuel. But you also might think about the, you know, the quantity that you're having. And sometimes people who are moving at at um, lower intensities forget, and they sort of overfuel, if you like, or they overdrink because they they're trying to do everything as well as possible. And the irony is that sort of the, the slower you go, even though relatively it's as fast as you can manage, um, it just becomes um, easier when you're moving at a slower pace to eat and drink. So sometimes the people who are moving you know, more slowly can overdo it and that sometimes it's not the disaster, but it can mean that they overhydrate and it can mean that they're and they're just getting, um, you know, causing themselves some gut problems just because they don't need all the the stuff that's going in. But, you know, the fact that you're going slower and it's just easier and sometimes, you know, people who are um, recreational and doing some early things and they're just happy to finish, you know, they they stop for a chat at the feed zones because, you know, they like to um, uh, sort of pace themselves a little bit and sometimes you sort of get yourself from one aid station to the next and when you get there, you like to have a bit of a... um, a stop just to get yourself back feeling better, but that can sometimes make it more likely that you're overdoing the food and fluid intake just because, um, you know, it's it's easier to do it. Not always, but that's just sometimes a, um, a thing that people don't think about. It's, it's much easier to think that athletes always need to be pushed to have more, but there's often situations where you're suggesting to athletes that they've really... Got plenty, and that maybe even backing off a little bit might be more helpful.
0: I had that exact experience, David. I don't know if you remember, at, uh, at one of the Grand Fondos in Europe where we rode 160k. And um, I was so par- it was one of my first times riding that distance uh, in those conditions. And uh, I was so paranoid about underfueling, and we were riding as a group. So we were actually stopping at the aid stations, making sure that we were all riding together. And I absolutely overfueled, and I had you know the worst gut problems from the first third of the actual event and it, it lasted all day until that night and it's just crazy how easy it is to do when you're you're thinking you're doing the right thing but um there's no need for it
2: yeah that's that's a that's a great anecdote and and, and you know it, it's amazing how often it does happen as i said we're sometimes thinking that um our role is to tell people to do more to do better um, but sometimes it's you know pacing yourself more appropriately you're
1: probably fine that the uh the oh, the more elite the athlete is, they're the ones who are actually under fueling probably because mm. they're, because they're, they're riding, um, you know, we're talking about the Ironman here just as an example. And, you know, they're riding at 42 Ks an hour. And, and from all the evidence that Jordan and I have collected over the years, it is around 80 to 82% of their FTP. And that's quite intense for, for yeah. X hours. <laughs>
2: It's extraordinary. There's been some interesting work that's been published in the last year about the elite marathon runners, particularly those that um, trained up for the the, um, attempt on the two-hour marathon. And they're working at sort of 85 to 92% of their VO2 max. And it's incredible that you can imagine the human body being able to sustain that. Um, And it's both like a high relative intensity but the absolute intensity is also, you know, it's incredible. I, I, I love going to some of those big city marathons where um, some of the shoe companies bring trucks and they have a, um, a treadmill on the back and they'll <laughs> yes. offer, offer, offer people from the street the chance to, how long can yes. you stay on the treadmill at the pace of K- the guys? Kip yeah, and Kip at kipchogis pace. Yeah. And yeah. Some people and
1: last 1K and some people last 400 metres.
2: Yes, I know. So just the, um, and, and, you know, so when people say to me, oh, you know, marathons and endurance events and their fat burning um exercise no they're not not for mm. the top people out mm. and it, you know it's phenomenal the, the the body's ability to be able to sustain that intensity but it, it means that they're really chugging through the carbs to do that so that's when it becomes important to be fueled well
0: and I think 1K is generous, Dad. Not many people can bust out a 253K uh, on its own, let alone 42 of them in a row. And yeah, most people last 100 meters, let alone a K. Um, in terms of, uh, Louise, your advice on uh, once it, we start getting to the complications of uh, how to work this out yourself, uh, going to find a consultant like yourself to uh, help work this out for you how, do you, how do you go about finding the numbers for a person? Is it a test that you have to do to find out... Um, where you how much you're burning uh, as well as hydration how much you're sweating
2: yeah look you can do that um there's there's lots of um dieticians and physiologists sport scientists that that can do those kinds of um exercises with you so that you can um in terms of sweating you can weigh yourself before and after a session of exercise and use the change in your, your body mass as a sort of a guide to what sweat losses you're incurring and you know you can have some measurements of of the carb burning um, you can do on a treadmill or a bike, and you can um, collect the gases just like you do in a max test, and that'll tell you what fuels you're burning, so you get a bit of a feel for that. Um, but you know, sometimes it's just through trial and error of how you alter your diet, and then see how the the um, the quality of your training and your ability to recover goes as well. So it's a, you know that sometimes you you need both pieces of of information because you can work out what's happening in one session in lab and, and work out what the fuel cost of it is, but that's just one session. And so when you're thinking about how it all goes together and integrates into the periodized plan, you know, sometimes it's more the outcomes of um, how the tr- training is going and where you're able to recover and, um, you know, it's putting it, putting both the inputs and the outputs
1: together you're a big believer um, from all of the stuff that i've been listening to over the years that that it's it's a learnt thing everybody's individual and what works for you may not work for the person training for the same event um, uh, at the same uh, level or standard and and you're if, correct me if I'm wrong, you're absolutely saying it's it's you finding out what works for you along your journey and, and you're learning as much from the coaches as you are from the nutritionists and you should be working yeah. together with each other rather than you know, the nutritionist saying, here's your information, not even talking with the coach. Uh, the coach is giving the strategy for the intensity you're going to ride or run or swim at, and the nutritionist is, and they're like, they're working separate. And your philosophy is no, they need to work together to get the right outcome.
2: Absolutely. I love coaches and I love athletes. I mean, if, I, I learn just as much from them as I do from the science journals. Um, it's, you know, putting all the bits and pieces together. The thing about coaching that's never really appreciated is just how much it is an art as well as a sign. Um, You know, getting it right for an individual athlete and putting the whole program together. So it's like that conductor of the orchestra. It's it's such a special experience when you get the whole thing humming and that comes from not just the the numbers and trying to make everything cookie-cutter signs. It's really about that individual and all the... The idiosyncrasies they have and getting it right. And I, I mean, one of the great experiences of working at the AIS was just having day-to-day contact with athletes in their training environment. So um, you know, it's lovely being a private practitioner and having athletes come and see you in their off in your office. Um, but it's so much more rewarding going out and seeing the athlete in their environment. I, I mean, it's funny how I've um, over the years I um, have started doing a lot of work with race walkers because I can run at their walking speed. And so I can go out and train with them and observe that training session. So it's, it's not, and I can be part of the training session. I mean, I'm doing more than observing it. I'm, I'm seeing it from the um, bird's eye view. And I learned so much about um, the athletes, and not just what they're tolerating, but a little bit about what makes them tick. And that helps you with the um, working together to get that plan right. Um, so don't underestimate what the coach knows and what the athlete, you know, is experiencing as um, part of the ingredients to getting the plan right.
0: I couldn't agree with that sentiment more, and uh, I'm obviously biased to Dad's coaching. But I tell people all the time that um, I'm constantly shocked at how much wisdom and experience plays a part in the art of coaching. And like you said, it is an art and just having so many uh, decades of of experience in the industry just counts for so much. And that cannot be uh, discounted when you're trying to compare what uh, the science is saying compared to what you're actually experiencing in the field. Mm. Um,
2: Absolutely. And I love all these gadgets, you know, I love the um, training peaks and the garments and all the um, metrics that can be collected. Um, And that's, you know, part of your toolbox but it never replaces that personal um, interaction that you have with the coach and with your fellow athletes and you know, I think the best thing that you can do is to is to have that coach relationship and, you know, be part of the squad and get everything out of it because all the stuff that you can collect on, on um, yourself with wearables and download on a program and look at, et cetera, that's one part of it but... You just cannot replace, like as you said. I mean, I've, I've just remembered a whole lot of things that Jerry's taught me today that I've <laughs> forgotten. Um, but you know, all those, those experiences and insights, and um, just the as you said, the wisdom that's that's the bit that you, um, you can't get with some of the modern science stuff. And I sometimes feel a bit sad that you know people just sort of taking up platforms as being the replacement for the human interaction rather than seeing it as just a a tool to aid that human interaction to be better.
0: So you've given us a great starting point. Uh, For example, pre-race day, you know, uh, 10 grams of uh, carbs per kilogram of body weight, for example, and it could be six to 10 depending on the uh, yeah. requirements of the event the next day. Um, but that is a great starting point because you have to start somewhere, especially when you go to see a consultant and there is going to be some trial and error involved. We want to know whereabouts we can start. So what about um, pre-race in the morning and during the race, what are some of the benchmarks we can start with, with grams of carbs per hour, total calories per hour? Yes.
2: So look, it depends with pre-race um, what time of the day the race is and how much you're trying to use that to keep fueling. So you know, somewhere between one to four grams per kilogram is sort of the the scientific benchmark. And if you've got an early event, you know, one might be enough. But if it's a um, if it's a long event, like if you're doing a a marathon or a fifty k race walk, I'd probably get up a bit earlier and have two to two to three. Um grams, just so you've got a little bit more fueling still happening. And then during the race itself, um, you know, we aim for anything between 30 and 90 grams an hour, depending on the duration of the race and how much fuel is going to be burnt. So if I was if I was a um, doing you know, say a, a long ride, and but I'm only doing it as you said, the six, the um 60 percent of vo2 max or um, ftp that you're talking about then i probably would aim somewhere between more three to six 30 to 60 but you know when i'm working with some um, the really elite athletes who are working at such a high intensity we you know we're trying to get the 90 grams which is Easy enough, not easy, but it's um, more easy to do in cycling and race walking than it is in running. Running, because if you've got that constant joggling of your gut, makes it quite difficult to, um, to tolerate that amount. Not, not impossible, but, you know, sometimes you have to say, well, that might have been nice on paper, but the reality of what I can manage mm-hmm. is going to be a bit less. And so that, you know, you put that to perspective also of, what the event is because if you're doing say uh, uh, um, a cycling tour then not only is that fuel that you're having on the bike contributing to today's fuel mm-hmm. but it's also adding to, to, to tomorrow's fueling as well so you might be a little, bit more aggressive because you, you're trying to just keep the total calories and and, and fueling up um, for the, the bigger picture so there's a bit of modification that, that can happen but but they're generally the sort of the ballpark figures that we start with and then um, just keep manipulating till we get it right for the individual.
0: And is that, sorry, Dad, I know you're about to ask something, <laughs> <laughs> um, but is that that's maintained based purely on intensity and not duration of the race? So
2: well, you- they go together of, because, okay. um, you know, if if you're moving at a higher intensity, the race is going to be shorter for you, if that makes sense. Um, so, because like sometimes people think, oh, ultra endurance. You know, I'm doing a, I'm doing a 10 hour, a 12 hour, a 24 hour event. I've got to keep the 90 grams up per hour for that period of time. But of course, the, you know, the intensity is much lower, so you mm-hmm. really don't need to be that aggressive. So you've got to, um, you know, there's sort of a happy medium. Some, and it depends on the, the race. But you know, when I work with the 50k race walkers, they're doing a three and a half hour event, and the 90 grams per hour. Is really needed for all that period of time. Whereas um, you know when I'm when I'm doing a marathon, it's taking me three and a half hours and I've not go anywhere near their intensity. So I perhaps don't need as mm. as as much going in. But look that's that's sort of trial and error that you learn and it it um it's about what you can manage and how would you feel and what your performances are looking like and you know whether you're um able to keep the Intensity up right to the end. If you're starting to tire in the race, it could be that you don't have enough um, fuel towards the end. Um, so look, there's it's, it's a whole lot of whole lot <clears> of things <throat> together.
1: Yeah, good. Well, I think that's that's a good point to to get to this next level of what we want to discuss now. And um, and one of the is it like there's a whole lot of questions I'd like to ask, but one of the key ones is just your opinion of solid fuel carbohydrate versus Liquid and and the pros and cons of having it during competition.
2: Yes, yeah, so you've got to think about fuel and fluid being separate needs that often go hand to hand, but sometimes don't. So if you're doing um, an event that's in really cool conditions, then you might have carbohydrate requirements that are greater than your fluid needs. And then if you're doing an Ironman in Kona, you know you need to have more fluid than the fuel requirements that you have in other races. So when, when you're having a, a liquid form of something, you're sort of getting more fluid than fuel, if you like, and then as you start concentrating it, I mean, some of the sports drinks, some of those, um, the, um, the newer sports drinks made for the ultra, also the um, high-caliber athletes, you're getting very concentrated. You know, we're getting 16% concentration drinks rather than the 6 to 8% that you will see as the general sports drinks. So, the, but the liquids still contributing to fluid needs. Once you start getting into things like gels and the and the um, confectionery, the sports chews and and um, gummies, then you're starting to get more carbohydrate than the fluid side of things. Now you can obviously just have some water with it so that you can get it back into alignment again. Um, but you know, sometimes people like the the concentrated carb sources because you can in a very short period of time just gobble it down. Like a lot of the the, um, cyclists like to have things in their back pocket and and rather than having to drink a whole 600 mils of the sports drink to get that fuel concentration, they can just have a gel and that's something that can be really quickly um, got down when they're trying to really concentrate on the, the fuel side of things. And then, of course, the duration of the race. And the length of time since you've had your last meal sometimes means that you can get hungry if you if you've got a long period. So a lot of um, uh, longer distance athletes, like the the cyclists, or if you're doing an Ironman, Man, you know, in the cycle, particularly the cycle leg, where it's easier to eat things because you you know you can sit up and you can um, hold things and eat them. Then you know sometimes people like to eat real food, so you might be having the banana or the guava jelly sandwich. Um, under those situations, in the really long um, events, the ultra-endurance events, um, sometimes it becomes sort of flavour fatigue. You know, if you've you've drunk 12 hours' worth of sports drinks Mm. and and gels and things and all you've been having is lemon, lime and orange and you're just really sticky and it's all sweet, then you can really look forward to having something that's savoury. So a veggie might sandwich or something might be um, a form of carbohydrate that comes along just at the right time because it's providing a different taste and a different texture and it's um just getting you more interested in eating again you know you're trying to keep the carbs going in but you're just sick of what you've been having and so mentally you might like something that's a bit different just to keep it interesting so it's a whole lot of things that you you put together about what's what's behaviorally appropriate like you know so, uh, as i said you know, sometimes people can't manage things. It's sometimes hard to peel a banana and eat yeah. it on a run when you're going that fast, um, so that's not a good choice. But, you know, a gel where you just bite the top of it and squeeze it or um, a drink that's giving you the fluid. You know, you're thinking about all the different things you're trying to build into that that um, opportunity to eat. Uh, what needs to be there? How can I do it? Where is it coming from? That's the other thing because... Yeah, you know, it's hard to carry all your fluid needs mm-hmm. with you um, in one go, but you can put a lot of stuff in the back pocket if it's concentrated, if it's the gels and the chews. So, yeah, you know, sometimes people have the idea that they'll carry as much carb with them, but then they'll get the drinks along the way from um, the feed zones.
0: One last question on the um, the 30 to 90 gram kind of range, depending on the intensity. What about if we go shorter, like a a 60 to 90 minute uh, road race on on the bike or even an Olympic distance triathlon, which is two to two and a half hours, but the intensity is um, a lot higher than a half Ironman or Ironman. Does that go to the lower end of that 30 gram recommendation because it's so short, you don't need it? Or does it go higher because of the intensity?
2: Yeah, well, it depends on how much you've been able to store in your muscles. So your glycogen is probably going to be much more important there in terms of the fuel source. Um, and then it's about what you can manage. But the other side we haven't talked about is what your brain's doing. So we're talking when we're fueling up until now about getting things that are going to be absorbed and delivered to your muscles. But one of the most interesting things about sports nutrition in recent times has been the understanding that simply putting something in your mouth creates a reaction between receptors in your mouth and your brain. And you know that, Jerry, because, you like, you know, in those really early days, you know, you would go out and you'd bonk on the right and you'd have something and immediately within, you know, 15 seconds of having something, you feel better. Now, there's been no opportunity for that to be emptied and gone to your muscles to make a difference to fuel, but your brain said, wow, this is good, I'm going to feel better and it immediately just, you know, makes you just feel like you can go a bit faster or um, overcome that fatigue. So sometimes the role of nutrition in the race is not so much to have a fuel effect it has a minor fuel effect but it's to keep your brain happy and the interesting thing about that is that it just can continue to happen your brain's like homer simpson it just gets what it knows and so every time it sees a donut or every time you put that in carbs in your mouth it says wow mm-hmm. and then you, you know eight minutes later you can do it again and you'll still get that little kick so sometimes what we're doing in, in those shorter distance races is just dribbling in the carbohydrates so that you're just feeling happy and you just – your brain is telling your muscles, yeah, we can do this, keep going. And it's not going to run out of fuel in the muscles so much, but it just needs the brain to keep engaging the muscle to keep going.
0: That's really, really cool. Um, I mean, we don't want to keep you too long. I think one final question uh, I had was – and, again, this is just one of those ones that's going to be hard to answer, which is always the case with nutrition. But uh, what a, what's something that you can offer as advice that's just going to be uh, the biggest bang for your buck with nutrition? Because I know there's a lot of things the elite athletes will do that will give them the one percenters, and they're looking for every single edge. Um, but for the age grouper, um, what's going to be most worth their time in terms of nutri- nutritional change?
2: I reckon the best thing you can do is learn how to cook and put foods together so that you enjoy what you're eating but get all the ingredients in there you know it's um i think it's really hard if you haven't got familiarity with food and it's not just um reading food labels it's understanding how to put meals together so that they kind of work and that you can get the carbs in and the amount of carbs like you know, we talked about these grams of carbs, but what you haven't said to me was, what does that look like if I was going to have any mashed potatoes or what does that look like if it's going to be rice? And so, you know, I'd invest in just, you know, spending time learning how to cook and reading what's in things and learning what um, this amount of carbs looks like in different food forms. And so that you can translate these ideas that you're reading into what might go on your plate. And you know, part of that's going to be appreciating it more. Like you'll you'll really start enjoying um, the meals if you've contributed to putting them together, and you might find that there's things you like better than others. And you know, there's nothing like the satisfaction of, of sort of thinking, ticking off all those goals being met, and knowing that you contributed to yourself. It's it's good. Um, so that that would be my starting point. Of just just getting the point where you can be practical and understanding how to put the food together whether it's you know selecting it whether it's cooking it whether it's um um you know making it taste a bit more special but that would be a good investment i
0: i really i'm really glad you said that because um I've been in the fitness kind of industry and, and this industry for a while. So I, I do have that knowledge of um, what food actually equals a certain amount of, of, of mm-hmm. grams of carbs or fat or protein, but I would recommend, and I would wonder if you would agree with this, um, that you do learn how to calorie count and that's not, not to keep track of your calories because um, that can be a, a kind of downward spiral mentally sometimes for people, but just to learn what's in each food, because when you cook dinner, if you actually learn what this amount of potatoes equals in terms of grams of carbs and total calories, and this amount of meat, Meat and uh, this amount of veggies um, then you do learn what's actually in it all these foods and like you said when you do put them all together you have that knowledge would you agree with that
2: yeah and look not just the calories i think all the different sorts of things like understanding what um, the protein looks like we know what does 20 grams of protein if we say that's a target look like and where am i going to get the calcium etc because then um because i think sometimes if you're just um thinking about the calories you can end up thinking oh i could have four tin tans or I could have this meal with vegetables and, and meat, and it's got um, lots of different contributors, and it's still the same number of calories. And if you're mm-hmm. just the calorie person, you think, oh, what's the difference? Um, whereas if you think about, oh, look at all that great protein and that great iron, and I'm getting some calcium, and there's some. Um, B vitamins and when you when you're sort of thinking how much bang you're getting for your buck with that other meal then you might be more interested in it than if you just if you just the bottom line if it's only just calories sometimes you miss out on some of the other good things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess to clarify that, it's it's learning um, uh, the, the basic principles of, um, you know, one gram of uh, carbohydrate or protein is is four calories, and then one gram gram of fat yeah. is, is nine calories. So those basic principles are really helpful. Dad, yeah. uh, did you have anything you want to finish off with? Um, it's a pity
1: we're finishing off. That's that's the one thing I wanted to mention, but.
2: <laughs> there's- back again yes and look there's so many many
1: more questions (laughs) that i've got for you louise and um and you know a lot of it Revolves around my experiences as, as an athlete from the 90s to now, and how how my requirements have changed personally. And I think that would be really helpful for the listeners who are who are you know who they may be 40, they may be 50, they may be 20 who's listening and and what the requirements are a for male versus female, um, b for a 20 year old versus a 60 year old. Um, and they're the they the sort of things that I want to uh, ask your advice on. And and I'm sure there's people out there. You know, we talk about sodium and should should we be taking oh. salt tablets? And um, and there's just so many other questions that we haven't got. You know, we've already been going probably too long for you tonight. But uh, <laughs> but these are the things that I'd, I'd really love to get into. And and from this first uh, podcast that we've done with you, if we have questions, I would imagine that people would be dying to get you to answer their questions. Uh, if you don't mind, it would be fantastic. Um, so... We're really rapt that you could give us this amount of time so far, but it would be great to have you back on if you could.
2: I'd love to (laughs) come.
1: Thank that's you. amazing. I think
2: I, I think I took four biopsies from you, so <laughs> I think, uh, at least, at least, I eat that much back.
1: Right? <laughs> uh, uh, that's uh, long forgotten. Don't worry. Um,
0: <laughs> that's a great way to finish, Louise. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if anyone wants to look up any of your hundreds of articles, you can online, and they'll all appear. Um, but yeah, we've massively appreciated it, and we sure, we're sure everyone will enjoy the episode. So thanks for coming on. Our pleasure. That's it for us, and we'll see you next time.